Welcome to The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want the truth about having a healthy, happy, strong body. Remember, your body was meant to move. Now here's your host, Stephen Sashen. The holy grail is knowing how to run without getting injured. Whether you're wearing shoes or going barefoot, I mean, that's really your goal is to enjoy going out, enjoy running, and not worry about being able to do it the next day. Well, we're going to be chatting with someone who has some interesting thoughts about that on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting with your feet first, those things that are your foundation. We're going to break down the propaganda, the mythology, the often lies that you may have been told about what it takes to run, to walk, to hike, to play, to lift, to do CrossFit, yoga, whatever it is you like to do, and do that enjoyably and efficiently and effectively. I'm Stephen Sashen from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the Movement Movement podcast. We call it the Movement Movement because we're creating a movement that involves you about movement, and that's about natural movement. We're trying to make natural movement or help people rediscover that natural movement is the obvious, better, healthy choice the way natural food is. If you like what you hear here, then go over to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. And to join the movement, all you have to do is enjoy what we do. Check out the previous episodes, like, share, comment, give us a thumbs up where you can do that. Uh, hit the bell button on YouTube so you hear about upcoming episodes. You know how to be part of this. In fact, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's jump in. Peter Francis, hello. Hello. Now, I said I, we started this conversation just a few minutes ago, and then we started it again right now. And when I started with Peter, I said that I was humiliated and embarrassed that it took me till now to discover him, you, because you are a staunch proponent of barefoot things. And we just jumped into that conversation. I found out about you last week or so when there was an article that came out. Was it in the Telegraph or where was it? I can't remember. I think it's originally written on the conversation.com and then it's got picked Uh, up by a few other places like CNN and, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the gist of it and, and what the title was something along the lines, will barefoot running cure your injuries. Pardon me for not being in any way prepared, but that's how I run my life. Yeah. the, The media gave it various titles like that. Yeah. Yeah. So before we jump back into our conversation and then I will be asking you to give the tour of your man cave again, cause I love your new log cabin. Tell me who the hell you are, what the hell you're doing here. Before we get into how you got into this whole concept of natural movement, what are you up to now? Well, I guess uh, I'm, a, I'm a lecturer at the Institute of Technology in, in Carlo, which is a place in Ireland. I'm a sports scientist, physical therapist, and I do research into foot development in adolescents, children, adolescents, and adults who grow up with and without wearing shoes. So silly as this may sound, that means you have some actual expertise and not just opinions. Well, science is a humble pursuit, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when people talk to me about the whole natural movement thing, they'll often say, well, there's a big controversy around this barefoot stuff. I go, no, no, no. There's a bunch of research demonstrating the value of natural movement. And there's a bunch of people with opinions and the, the two are, the Venn diagram does not overlap somewhere which is always stunning for people here. Well, anyway, we were talking. So tell me if you can, or start to repeat your story of how you discovered natural movement and barefoot running. So I was a keen runner from the age of 16. And a couple of years into that, I started to pick up a lot of injuries. I was studying sports science at the time, and I was mainly interested in performance at that time. And I got so many injuries. And then I, I graduated and I went to the Middle East and taught English for a year. And when I was out there, I couldn't access physio in the same way. And a friend of mine just happened to send me a a magazine article and said, have you tried this barefoot running? And I thought, well, what the hell? It can't hurt. So I found a grass park. I did two sessions of running and my plantar fasciitis, a painful heel condition, cleared up almost immediately. And when I came back to Ireland to do my PhD, I said to my professor, hey, this really weird thing happened to me in the Middle East and I want to do a study on it. And he kind of threw his eyes to heaven, as professors often do. But he did humor me and he he said, well, let's get one of the undergraduate students to do a a small research project in it first. And we did. And we found that runners without their shoes, we took the arm off off a treadmill and we got some cameras around it. And we looked at runners running at two different speeds with and without their shoes. Um, And at the lower speed, the runners had a shorter stride more flexed hip knee and ankle. And that was kind of the beginning of, I suppose, my career more in the research end of, of barefoot. When was that? Uh, that was 2010. 
oh, so yeah, so you came in right as the boom was starting to boom. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, it didn't necessarily feel like that at the time, but I just uh, I stumbled upon it and um, I got some joy from it. And so I became interested in how it was all working, you know? Yeah, you and me both. I mean, I, I say it that way because we started Zero Shoes in late 2009. And from late 2009 to mid-2010, basically every major shoe company was putting out content articles, various things saying, you know, don't run barefoot. You're going to kill yourself and you're going to, uh, your mortgage rate's going to go up and you're going to step on hypodermic needles and you'll catch Ebola. And you know, it was just insane. And then of course, by the end of 2010, the shoe companies were coming out with shoes. They were calling barefoot or calling minimalist, which frankly were nothing of the sort, but they were trying to capitalize on it before they found out or before everyone just, you know, bailed on them entirely. So that's why I say it was, you know, the beginning of the boom. And, and that was also just that same era when Born to Run became popular as well. Was that, did you read Born to Run at that time? Was that in any way inspiring or was this all just based on your experience and going, I got to check this out? No, it was just based on my own experience. Yeah. Love yeah. it. So when you say you tested people at two different speeds, you mm-hmm. saw the, sh- and I'm putting air quotes around shorter stride length because that's massively misunderstood by people. But what were you, what did you see at the faster speed and what were the two speeds? I'm curious. So we saw no difference at the faster speed. And I think that's because when you run faster, you, you tend to use good mechanics anyway. And I think I have a, a suspicion that the, the, the problem of injury in long distance runners is, is actually in the, in the volume of low speed training. And so therefore, mechanical changes at that speed are probably most important in terms of interesting solving the problem so yeah we, we didn't see a change at the faster speed but we did at the slower one yeah well um, did, did you ever bump into bill sands do you know bill no bill was the head of biomechanics for the US Olympic committee he used to have human performance lab at a university out here in colorado and i met him must have been around that same time I mean, in fact it was definitely right around that same time late 2009 ish and what he would do is he'd bring you in his lab. He had this five foot long, 10 foot or five foot wide, 10 foot long treadmill. He'd throw you on there at, and film you from the back and the side at 500 frames a second. And first he'd have you run in your favorite pair of shoes, then barefoot. And then it was like doing an eye chart or an eye test, you know, better, worse, better, worse with every other pair of shoes that you had. And in over 90% of the people, he found that at a normal training speed, their, bio, their mechanics changed dramatically and improved dramatically when they were barefoot. And then, so the question was, what shoes can you wear that's going to give you the closest thing to that experience? He never even suggested people run barefoot. It was just like, if you're going to run in shoes, let's see what we can do to be as close to something that we just demonstrated is better. And it was amazing the number of people who found those improvements, but still were like attached to wearing big, thick motion control shoes that he showed them didn't help them in any way. It was, it was a fascinating thing about people really being locked into an idea that they had somehow gotten married to despite the evidence in front of their face. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, all right. Good enough response. <laughs> so, all right. So you did that bit of research and what happened next? Since that um, was now 10 years ago. Did that piece of research, finished my PhD, which was in a, an, an unrelated topic. And then it started to engineer my work and research more towards running injury and, and barefoot. And so probably from around 2015 started to publish more and more in the barefoot and in the running injury space, which is which is what we do now still. Yeah. What kind of response are you getting? I, let me see if I can preface that that question after the fact. What's amazing to me, like I said, there's all this research on natural movement, and it seems to get a little press. B arguments from people who know nothing about what they're talking about. And there was a C when I started this thought, uh, sometimes just, you know, vitriolic responses of people telling, saying, you know, this is complete bullshit. But the, the one that, that amazes me, of course, is that is simply how little response that a lot of this research gets, despite how profound it actually could and should be. What did you discover when you started publishing? Well, in science, you just got to do the studies and, and publish the work. So I can't say that I've had major trouble there i do try and write blog pieces and try and write media friendly pieces so that the information is communicated to wider audiences and we've had some success in doing that but um i think also it's it's complicated because i guess the, the traditional influencer has an overly simplistic view which means 
the advice from them is as likely to send you in the right direction as it is the wrong direction. And then you have a lot of scientists maybe who who don't have real world experience and application of the information. And so there's a sweet spot in the middle because, you know, I'm working on a book at the moment about running injury. And yes, there's a chapter on shoes and there's a chapter on being barefoot, but there's a whole lot of other stuff like not changing your training load too quickly, not chasing previous versions of yourself or other people, learning to introduce variability into training, learning not to take what clinicians say to heart too much. There's a whole lot, you know, uh, being less sedentary in daily life, you know, not getting bored and needing instant gratification. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into why somebody gets injured. So probably when you look at it with a black and white lens that you start getting into trouble and and then you just get, I suppose, overly simplistic arguments over and back in the media. And then it, it probably doesn't go anywhere, you know. Well, a lot of that seems to be, you know, human beings, they want a simple answer. They want to know, you know, what's the step-by-step thing that I do independent of the of individual differences. It amazes me when I'll get an email from someone saying, you know, I want to run this marathon in two weeks barefoot. What do you think I should do? And I, of course, respond, don't run the marathon barefoot in two weeks. So, it, and, and that's another part is people think that if they can imagine something, then they should be able to do it the way they imagine it, which is, of course, not the case. With all the things that you describe for all those different conditions that can be helpful. It made me think of Arthur Lydiard. There's a, a great documentary that I don't know who did it about Arthur. And for people who don't know, he was perhaps the most successful running coach of all time. He coached people from the 800 meters to the marathon, a lot of world champions and Olympic champions coming out of New Zealand, which is, you know, tiny, tiny little country that I think you guys used to have some connection to. And Lydiard did exactly everything you just said. I mean, the variability in what he was doing and how he did cross training and how he was he did a lot of training barefoot and of course he was making shoes for people that looked like ours they were thin they were flat they were wide they were lightweight he was a professional shoemaker and you know when i'm hanging out at the university of colorado watching how they're training it's just like pounding in the miles and seeing who survives or i'll see some guys who have professional coaches and the amount of like strength training they do or anything else it's so obvious that that's something that they're kind of giving lip service to. Even at the Olympic level, you know, these guys who are, I mean, sure, they're great runners, but like can't do a push-up for all practical purposes. I love everything you said. I think that, you know, proposing that people adopt what you're suggesting is a Herculean task. What do you think it's going to take to, I don't know, expand people's mind to get people to think about moving differently, running differently, injuries differently, more than just having this resource that you're going to be putting out? Well, I think that's a big question, but expanding people's mind is perhaps what society is in need of right now. I think, I think I can't remember the philosopher who said it, but tyranny is the eradication of nuance, you know, and I think increasingly in all aspects of life, it's been turned into black and white, you know, sort of ways of looking at things. And I think, you know, I guess if you look at things from an evolutionary perspective, you then have to say, well, why are we obese? Why are we suffering more anxiety and depression than ever? Why are we living in um, an environment where we're in chronic pain? Why are we so medicated? And on and on and on um, in terms of mismatched diseases. So if you if you take that sort of evolutionary lens, you you will start to say, well, okay, how do we become more conditioned in a modern environment? So mm. if we are sitting on an iPad and not climbing a tree growing up, then then we need to think about that in terms of the, the knock-on effects, you know? So you mentioned my cabin. There's a, there's no chairs with any backs on in here and, and there's a standing desk and there's a sort of a shoes off. So, you know, you're constantly trying to steer yourself towards something that's a bit closer to your evolutionary legacy you know eating well and exercising and all of that comes it becomes important but i guess with barefoot or not even barefoot running but just running if you're sat at an office desk all day long you, you're really asking your body to go from zero to 100 really quite quickly and, and that body is not conditioned either so those two things of kind of sudden change on a on a frame that's not as um musculoskeletally robust as a hunter gatherers might have been is an issue so i think to get people to to expand their mind you gotta you gotta address it on a whole number of fronts you know two things one to an earlier point you made 
there's tyranny within the barefoot community as well. And I think some of this is just people trying to establish themselves as a someone so they can make a living. So some of it is, you know, you have to run this way. There are some people who say you have to land on this part of your foot in the following way. And I'm not going to get into it because they'll, they'll, they'll basically be identifying who I'm talking about. But, but, or even just the, the ideas that have taken hold, like that the optimal cadence is 180 steps per minute. Or, I mean, just all these little things that people have tried to turn, that they've tried to codify in doing that, they've really ossified, which is an amazing thing since this is such a new movement that there's so many ideas that have already become entrenched that, you know, we've got to talk people out of. That's sort of part one. Part two, I obviously, and not surprisingly, agree with you about the mismatch between our evolutionary history and where we are now. The thing that I'm curious about, and I wonder, you kind of addressed this, but I want to highlight it is a point that I made on a, on a panel discussion. I said, look, there's no amount of ancestral movement or, or climbing trees or whatever that you can do that really replicates what we were doing as tribal society members, where you have to walk to the river a thousand times to get enough rocks to build a shelter, where you're chasing down food or being chased by things that think you're food. And the example I give, I say, look, as a, as a sprinter, I can tell you, I had a really hard workout on Sunday. I felt a little sore on Monday, but if I had a race where I worked out one-tenth as much, but was much more intense because it was an actual race, then I'd be sore till Thursday. And so there's just a hormonal thing that happens that's completely different under in the heat of competition than anything I can simulate when I'm training. So similarly, you know, whatever we're doing now is at best a simulation of our hunter-gatherer history. How do you see that or, and how do you see any way of maybe getting those things a little closer together? Well, I think the key thing you mentioned there is about repeatedly walking to the river and gathering stones and so on. What you see with that type of activity is it's a constant low level of conditioning. So I think that was probably how we spent the majority of our time. The other stuff about hunting and so on, but it was probably persistent hunting. So, you know, again long periods of low-level conditioning with short bursts of high-intensity exercise. So you're not really in a constant state of inflammation. You're in a constant state of activity. I mean, the, the best example I've seen of it recently is my brother is a mechanic and, and also a guy who's interested in agriculture and so on. And so sometimes if, if I look out the kitchen window having a coffee when I watch him, he's in and out of his garage. He's up and down the stairs. He carries this thing across to the compost heap and then he turns around and, you know, whatever, moves stone here and there. So he, I watched him one day and I thought, yeah, this guy doesn't need to exercise because he's, he's mimicking this constant upright posture where he's performing various activities repeatedly. So I, I do think it, 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 a modern version of it exists if you have a manual occupation. If you don't and you're trying to be an athlete, I think it's very, very difficult. And something I observed recently is even if I watch duathlons or triathlons or some running events, I notice that the people in the events, you know, they don't really look like athletes. And, and, I, and I, understand <laughs> it's, I understand it's a participation sport. And I think it's brilliant that, they, that anybody at any level or fitness or whatever you want to say participates. It can only be good for their head and, and everything else. However, um, I do feel that when you look at them, they're sort of um, they're doing a really good thing by engaging with the sport. But you can almost see in how they look and how they move that they've been chained to a desk all week or a car mm -hmm. or a whatever, some sort of seated position in the way that they're, they're moving. And it, it's really got me thinking around the idea of, is, can sport serve the purpose it once did if we have a population that's so sedentary that even sport is now it's now quite a stressful event rather than um, a form of conditioning, you know? Or fun. I mean, this is one of yeah. the things with like the Tatarmar Indians, you know, they have running games where they're having fun for days yeah. at a time as part of a game. And we've we've definitely lost that. One of the things that I do when I'm, teaching people about barefoot running is we'll go out on a park and I'll, and I do things that just are designed to make them do and feel goofy. So I'll say, you know, think about being a, like little kids when they 
when they start running where they, they haven't grown into their head yet. So it's like they kind of lean their head forward and then they have to catch up to their head, which they can never seem to do because they can't keep it stable. It's like, just do that. Like let your head lead the way and just kind of, you know, keep your arms flapping by their side. Don't really use your arms. Just trying to do something to make it entertaining and get people out of this mindset of trying to accomplish something and making it a goal-oriented thing that you have to do that's got additional tensions. Like my line is always, if you're not having fun, do something different so you are. Because mm. otherwise, what's the point? And you don't want to, if you're not enjoying it for the sake of it itself, not even for a goal, then you're not going to continue it. I mean, sprinting is a ridiculous thing because it's not easy. But for whatever reason, I love the training. I find it really, really engaging. And now, granted, having the competition is really helpful because it, it, it just, I like having the goal as well. But the goal alone is not enough to make me put myself through that at 58 years old. That's ridiculous. Mm. There was some thought that oh, you just said in there. The, it's interesting. Like Someone did a, showed some, some photos of Olympic athletes from, I think, like the 40s and 50s compared to now. And in the 40s and 50s, basically all of the athletes looked relatively similar. They were all just decently fit people versus the genetic freaks we have on every end of the spectrum now that are seemingly tailored to specific sports. Like if you, if there was a, an Olympic female gymnast and an Olympic basketball player and they died at the same time and they were the only two fossils that anybody found in 10,000 years, people would assume those were two totally different species. And it didn't used to be like that. Everyone, you know, there was, I think like a more, more fundamental level of fitness for people who engaged in sports. And now it's just gotten crazy, crazy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that wasn't the question. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let me, I'm going to ask you a fun pointed question. So I imagine that every now and then you interact with other human beings and they ask you what you do and you start to say something and they'll say, make some comment about some new padded motion controlled heel elevated shoe where they talk about the vapor flyer, you know, some other, you know, giant cushion thing. How do you talk about footwear either to, you know, people who, probably aren't going to, we're asking for academic reasons versus people who are genuinely curious. I mean, how do you engage in this conversation that I have on a daily basis with hundreds of people? I suppose a few things. If, if I'm talking to runners, which is often what I'm doing if I do a public engagement type talk, I'll generally tell them to have the three criteria I use are light, cheap, and comfortable. Because when I did eventually overcome 10 years of injury and run my personal best, the shoes I was training in were if I wasn't running barefoot on the golf course or around the grassy park, I was, I was running in light, comfortable and cheap footwear. So I, I wasted a lot of money, you know, for a lot of years before I knew all this stuff. So that's the advice I give to runners. And then if someone more generally is interested in changing their footwear, whether it's up or down or whatever, I, I generally tend to say, well, sure, but take your time, you know, because if you, if you change your load in either direction, you know, there's, there's some good evidence coming out to say that you'll have you'll have problems. And I mean, intuitively, people notice if you do circuit training for the first time in a long time, you're sore, you know. So if you, if you change anything quickly, you, you, you'll have a you'll have a problem. You know? So I'm going to play devil's advocate or more accurately, I'm going to I'm going to pretend to be the kind of person that I have conversations with on an ongoing basis. So let's do it this way. Well, but Peter, I need our support. I mean, my doctor told me. Well, I think it depends. I think if you grow up habitually barefoot, as some of the um, boys who studied in New Zealand do, then you'll probably have well-developed arch and, and very strong foot muscles, in which case you probably won't need arch support. So then you get into saying, well, are we talking about, are we looking at prevention and, and long-term rehabilitation of a foot? Or are we looking at symptom management? And it's not impossible that a, that a doctor would be trying to manage a particular symptom using an art support. But again, you'd have to see the individual and know what the situation was and what the long-term management strategy was and, I suppose, what background they came from in the first place, you know? Well, and I also, I mean, clearly I need cushioning because, I mean, running, you, know, you put all that force on the ground, so I need a lot of cushioning. Again, I'd probably... I'd probably answer that in a similar way. If you've grown up barefoot, it, it, it would seem to us that you can run just fine and without cushioning. If you have grown up with cushioning, my own experience is that you can adapt 
to running and moving without cushioning. But again, uh, you would need to adapt slowly, you know? Well, and I also pronate. Well, this guy at the shoe store, you know, he put me on a treadmill and he showed me that I pronate. So clearly I needed those anti-pronation shoes, those motion control shoes. Well, well getting prescribed anything in a shoe store is not really, isn't, you know, that's very different to the medical professional in the first example, isn't it? So yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence for the shoe store form of prescription. That's not to say that there isn't evidence for biomechanical assessment and subsequent gait retraining. I think there is some good evidence that that muscles start to work a bit better with gait retraining and that gait retraining can be part of an overall solution, but that's not what happens in a shoe store. Well, then last but not least, so look, if this whole barefoot thing was so good, how come we never see barefoot runners in the, you know, in the Olympics? I think a few things there. That question is the challenge for science and then another challenge for society in terms of we don't have loads of data yet that can show us exactly the difference in injury incidence and prevalence between barefoot and shod runners. In the small bit of data that is there, it suggests that we have less plantar fasciitis and less knee injuries in the barefoot group, but we have more calf and Achilles uh, tendon strains in the, in, or sorry, the other way around, less plantar fasciitis and less knee injuries in the shod or in the barefoot group. But the barefoot runners do pick up more calf Achilles strains, which is indicative of um, transitioning to that type of stride. So until we get more clear data on that and how you manage transition, I think you'll always have kind of muddy water between people who are a bit like me, who are miraculously cured of plantar fasciitis, and then other people who've jumped into it and strained a calf. And so you'll you'll have that sort of muddy water there in that respect. The other thing is society in terms of, I ran for many years on a variety of public spaces on, on grass, even up up to 20 miles barefoot at sub three hour marathon pace. Um, however, I was always conscious that, um, particularly when I was in the UK more so, in, in New Zealand, it's sort of culturally acceptable to be barefoot. But when I was in the UK and, and Ireland, you know, running around the park barefoot, it, you know, it's not really um, the done thing. And again, when I was in New Zealand in, in, in the, the equivalent of um, Tesco, I'm just trying to think what the U.S. Uh, Walmart maybe or I don't know. But um, yeah, there's there's not a grocery store that spans the U.S. They have different okay. names, including including uh, my favorite name of any grocery store ever in the southeast. There's a grocery store chain called Piggly Wiggly. Okay, well, well, grocery store is a good way of summarizing them all. So so yeah. in New Zealand, you can be in the grocery stores doing your shopping with no shoes on. I found in in Auckland, um, whereas you couldn't do that here. So. I think in terms of realizing the benefit of being barefoot in an urban, modern environment, minimalist footwear can potentially play a role because, because I feel society, I just can't imagine a society, a westernized society whereby walking around barefoot is the norm. Actually, I can change that for it, first of all, and scene. So, but yes, you can right away. Go to any beach town, anywhere on yeah, the coast. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is this is the thing that's so funny to me is like it's totally normal at a beach town, but as soon as you get away from the coast, that's when it suddenly becomes abnormal. You know, I've gotten to the point I spend so much time barefoot. I walk into some stores, and if I'm wearing shoes, they're surprised. But you're right. I mean, the societal pressure, the normative pressure to fit in, is a huge piece of it, undeniably. And by the way, backing up to all your answers to my fake objections, I applaud you for really landing on the science where it's true. We have anecdotes do not equal data, but when there's so much anecdotal information, you can't ignore it. And I hope that someday we have both the time and resources, financial in other words, to do the kind of longitudinal studies that would be required to, I mean, frankly, put an end to the conversation and just land where we frankly think it would land. But, you know, to your point about the calf and Achilles strains, I've written a couple of things saying that those are totally optional if you transition slowly and attentively. And if you, I have a whole theory about neurological underpinnings for learning new movement patterns. So as an undergraduate, I did research on cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. And then I have this weird background of, you know, biofeedback and just having a knack for picking up physical skills. I was an all-American gymnast, which, you know, learning to do gymnastic skills is a very unusual thing because there's no... There's no approximation for almost any of those in the real world. There's nothing in the real world that prepares you to do a double twisting, double backflip. So 
and learning how to do something like that is, you know, flat out nuts. But anyway, my basic theory is that there's different levels of sort of neuroplasticity and brain function that put people in one of four categories. So one group of people, they are so unaware of what their body feels. I mean, they literally, if you ask them if they're hungry, they'll say, yeah. And you go, how do you know? Expecting they're going to say, well, I got a thing in the pit of my stomach. I feel kind of empty. And they'll just look at you and go, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm hungry. They go, but how do you know you're hungry? They go, well, I don't know. I'm hungry. It's lunchtime. Um, so some people, if you ask them to run barefoot, they can rip up their feet and they don't even know they did it because their brain map has so de-differentiated, they literally just don't feel anything. There's no connection between their feet and their brain in any meaningful way. And it seems that those people just need to start just walking around barefoot, getting some stimulation, waking up that neural pathway again. The next group of people, they can tell if it hurts, but they have bad proprioceptive skills. So these are the people who will email me and say that they wore out the heel of my shoe and so the rubber needs to be changed. And I say, well, you're overstriding and heel striking because it's just physics. Friction creates abrasion. And so the only way to create that abrasion is with excessive horizontal force applied to that spot. And then I'll, they'll send me a video and they are overstriding and heel striking. But I've literally had people look at videos of themselves doing that thing and then say to me, yeah, but I don't do that. <laughs> and I go, Dude, it's a video you sent me of you doing what you do. But so they need more video feedback to get in line with or get reality in line with what they're doing. And then the third group of people, they can tell if it hurts. They have, you know, decent proprioceptive skills and you can give them some cues to speed up the process and possibly reduce the chance of injury by suggesting things like instead of pushing off the ground with your, by plantar flexing your ankle or plantar flexing your foot, that you want to think about lifting your foot off the ground so you're not putting excessive force in your calf and your Achilles, but you can use cues for that. And then the fourth group of people, they're just naturals, they figured out, but their problem is they have so much fun that they get tired and that's a slow progressive thing that you don't notice and they revert to one of those previous levels. Now, the problem with my theory is I don't have any way for having people self-assess and then know what to do to move up the chain, if you will. Any thoughts? Because I've been working on this one for a while. How to categorize existing movement strategies and sensations and then how to monitor progress via intervention with those four groups, is it? Uh, that was good, yes. That's exactly it. Yeah, so you'd probably do that in the form of a a research study where you would have certain um, physical, perhaps even psychological markers to describe the overall experience of a newly barefoot participant when they run on maybe different types of surfaces. You then collate that baseline information and then you would design an intervention and you would monitor changes and in the analysis control for which group they were categorized as. That would be sort of off the top of my head, yeah. That's really interesting. Well, of course, what's, what's fascinating is that this would not only be relevant for people transitioning to barefoot running, but this could be relevant for people, talk, backing up to what you're saying earlier about people who they're sitting all day, they're sedentary, and now they're going out to move and they're still just carrying the same movement patterns through. There's some people who will do that, some people who won't do that. And if we could identify the differences between those two groups, those cohorts, maybe there would even be a way of helping people who are running in regular shoes have better movement patterns. It's funny. I've seen a whole bunch of people lately when I'm heading out to the track who have great running form and they're forefoot, midfoot landers, their heel, you know, will barely touch the ground. Not saying your heel should stay off the ground, but I mean, that's just what they do. They're natural forefoot runners. And yet they're still in big, thick padded, you know, elevated heel shoes. And I'm thinking, why? The way you run, you don't need that, but they still do that. And so I'm just perplexed by that. But suffice it to say, what you just described is an interesting thing. The, then the magic question becomes, how do we then turn that into some sort of self-assessment so that people can figure out who they are without having to go into a research lab and then know what to do to you know, progress? Because I'm not good at history. I'm really good at statistics. And I'm really good at movement, but I'm not really good at <laughs> organizing my desk. So we have these natural propensities for things and people have different propensities for movement. But we don't like to think of ourselves that way, or we don't, I'll tell you the one we don't like to think of ourselves as, as a sprinter, my VO2 max is pretty low and I'm totally non-responsive to VO max training. So I can do long, slow distance stuff all day long and my VO2 max just does not change. I'm a VO2 max non-responder. People don't like the idea that there's certain boxes that you might put them in. 
even though once you recognize what box you're in, it opens up a whole new world for doing the thing that you fit with instead of trying to do the thing that you don't fit. I always tried distance running repeatedly and you know, I never understood why I couldn't do it. It made no sense to me. And you know, to your point about persistence, endurance, hunters, this is a lightly comedic argument that I had with Dan Lieberman at Harvard, where he said, you know, we're all persistence endurance hunters and we just would stalk down our prey. I said, no, no, I'm not one of those guys. And he said, well, you just didn't train that way. I said, no, no, no. That's what all you slow people say. I was always the fastest kid that people knew. And the difference between, you know, persistence, endurance and sprinters, you guys would, you know, slowly chase down the gazelle. And then my guys would show up and we'd lift it up and carry it home because me and my friends deadlift three times our body weight and you guys can barely do push-ups. And he was like, oh, maybe. (laughs) So, but anyway, to the point of finding some way of identifying where you are on some kind of spectrum and how that would relate to what you might need to do to do any sort of movement better than you've been doing it, let alone well or proficiently. You know, if we're going to talk about injury, I think that's kind of the holy grail is people coming to grips with figuring out who they are and what they are and what works with those two things. Think through two things. The first one is you you do the original study, you then look to apply it. And again, as soon as you look to apply it, you introduce the variable of the individual. So right. I think you can definitely make positive suggestions for people, but the individual is key when it comes to application. You know, science is great until until you have to apply it to the individual, then you need to use your nuance to yeah. do that. No, it can be done. You you get the original data even the way i wrote an article that can be understood by the media you can do that kind of thing and then you maybe over time develop criteria in other fields you know they've done that second thing is if you want a real quick fast answer as to how someone can start looking at these things it's it's to get out of their head and into their body so i think because we're bombarded with technology news information you know, medical practitioners, diagnosis, scans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of ancient wisdom that points to getting into your body. So, you know, I've had friends come barefoot running with me before and I will um, they run with me for a while in the shoes. And when we've got about 10 minutes left and I want to introduce them to the concept, I'll get them to pop off the shoes. They talk about things like their childhood growing up on the beach and things that intrinsically feel good so what i would say to anybody is you know take your shoes off walk on across the grass or the sand or, or whatever and ask yourself how it feels you know and and if if it feels terrible then don't do it <laughs> you know yeah. i mean if you want to be really simplistic about it, if it feels yeah. all right then do a little bit more and see how you get on you know that's no the example you gave is is literally one of the things that i say all the time it's like you know, remember being a kid on a warm summer day, you go outside, you kick off your shoes, you feel the grass between your toes or the sand under your feet or the water around your ankles. And, you know, you just played for fun and you, you can have that experience now. I mean, that's the thing that's, I say, you can spot a barefoot runner from hundred meters because they're smiling and it's a completely different demeanor when you're out there and connecting with the ground underneath you, instead of just trying to get over it and get to either the end or, you know, just back in a loop. That's the other. I think we need to have some, some better system where you could go for a run where you didn't have to make a loop. I think having that thing where you have to turn around and come back, it gets in the way of fun. We got to, we got to work on that one too. Well, it can be a challenge because a lot, a lot of my later running career was dependent on um, a medium firm sand or grass uh, surface. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> there's this one track that I that I practice on where there's just a whole bunch of little kids, like three to five years old. And it is so much fun being out on that track because their parents are playing soccer in the in the infield and they're literally running and they're smiling, they're giggling, they're playing. They never run in a straight line. They stop when they get tired. They start again the moment they're not tired. They have perfect form. They never seem to get out of breath. I mean, it is it's just my favorite thing in the world to watch. And I go, you know, that's what we're trying to reclaim. It's sort of a sad thing that running became the thing you do to get in shape instead of the thing you do for fun or to get from here to there. Or, you know, it, it's become, uh, my, my line is, it's like, it's a shame that we work out, which we often do indoors, which also makes no sense. Instead of having other metaphors and other language 
for that activity that would make it seem more engaging to begin with. Yeah, I agree. Natural movement, nature, good food, exercise, positive social connections. It's all, yeah, it's all what's kind of going down uh, at the moment. It's sort of a shame the, the the whole obstacle course racing and Spartan runs and all those things or color runs, things that tried to make it more fun. They had a nice, like really fast rise, but now they're having a really fast fall and not just because of COVID. Um, prior to COVID, they were, you know, there was a lot of struggle there. I thought that was a really wonderful way of getting people to be more active in a way that was fun and was social and, you know, did still have some competitive components and some challenge, but you didn't really need to engage with that. I'm hoping that something continues or emerges that continues that thread of just making it interesting and entertaining and enjoyable, independent of, you know, the idea of working. And so it's funny you mentioned uh, the obstacle course uh, type event. I'd finished competitive running about almost a year when last October I did one of those for the first time and um, it was a lot of fun and and I realized I was doing okay in it which brought the competitor back out in me and um, I won the race but I I ruptured my Achilles at the finish line (laughs) I was minimalist when I did it but uh, I hadn't been doing a lot of running for quite a while and I guess getting into your 30s etc etc but um Oh, yeah, stop so, whining. I just turned 58. Cut that shit out. I've just recovered from it from it now. But I, I do wonder whether whether if I hadn't grown up in shoes and if I hadn't spent the first half of my running career in a cushioned trainer whereby my calf and Achilles was held in a shortened position, whether I might have got a bit longer out of it. I, I think that perhaps while my barefoot running did a lot for me and certainly helped an awful lot, I reckon the capacity of my tendon was limited to a certain period of time, you know. Maybe, or it may just have been one of those things because, you know, sometimes you just step in a weird way. You know, so here's one for you, and and maybe this is related. I mean, not your specific situation. So I have a, for the sake of people who get this, I have a grade two L5 S1 spondylolisthesis, or the simpler way I can put it is I've got a slightly broken spine. And if you look at an x-ray or an MRI and look for my sciatic nerve, you can barely find it coming out of my spine. And so my doctors can't figure out how I'm running at all. And I do get (laughs) this occasional symptom that I refer to as butt Tourette's, um, where it feels like someone took a vibrating electric needle and stuck it in right where my hamstring and my glute uh, hit, and then they vibrated really quickly. Um, Now I'm actually getting it on the front of my hip every now and then. But anyway, point being, when I first got back into sprinting, and I was getting a lot of calf injuries, mostly calf injuries, what it felt like, and I think this is actually legit, is it felt like the signal for my muscles to work in the proper sequence wasn't getting to the right place in the right time. It felt like, for example, I'd land and I'm trying, I'm rather than I, my foot wasn't ready to be landing on the ground, even though I thought it was ready to land on the ground. So it was applying force in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that was causing some of the strains. So, you know, you look at, geez, I'm remembering Tyson Gay, I'm former world champion, 100 meter runner, 200 meter runner from the U.S., and there was at one time in a race where his hamstring just exploded. I mean, these are, you know, high level athletes who just are doing the same movement pattern over and over and over, but sometimes, especially at high speed, you know, just something goes awry with the signal getting to the right place at the right time, or you step an inch in the wrong direction and you're putting force in, you know, the wrong place. In other words, I get where you're going, but I want to suggest that in the best of all possible worlds, it's still possible to get injured. I mean, I've had tiny little tweaks in the last 10 years that maybe put me out for a week or two because I had, because I, because especially again, I'm 58 now. So for the last 10 years, recovering just takes longer. Something that would have been a couple of days when I was your age is now a couple of weeks. But by and large, I was thinking about this on the track yesterday, actually. I've been totally fearless and completely uninjured for two years. And the, the thing before that was I had a little weird hamstring pull that, that had that same feeling of like my spine got in the way or my compromised spine got in the way of the signals getting to the right place at the right time. Oh, well, you know, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it was annoying, but it wasn't a big deal. So anyway, I, I guess, guess I should have said that, that I had the tendinopathy for six years prior to the rupture. So I'm well, pretty yeah, sure it wasn't one of those that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but even that's an interesting thing because tendinopathy, have you ever had prolotherapy? Do you know about prolo? So prolotherapy, they basically take a needle, typically a very long needle, and they, or it's, most people know of um, PRP, platelet-rich plasma therapy, which is basically prolotherapy delivered by people who don't know how to do prolotherapy and they're using ultrasound instead. But it's the same basic idea. The plasma and the platelet part is probably hand-waving and not necessary, or that seems to be the case. 
but basically you're selectively re-injuring the tendon or ligament so that it will lay down new tissue. And because, because things like tendinopathy, it's really, you know, there's so little blood going into the tendons. It's really hard to initiate a healing response, especially since your body isn't necessarily designed to do anything other than get you moving enough that you can get out of the way or not become food. It's certainly not designed to get you back into high performance or fighting shape. And so this is an intervention that can be helpful for doing that. So yeah, tendinopathy is, could definitely have been a causative factor that arguably could have been, could have been addressed with something, some intervention that you know, might've been helpful. But yeah, that's starting out in a bad spot to begin with. Doesn't help. Yeah. You should have opened with that. <laughs> But you know, it's funny, but even with that, like when I think about the little injuries that I've gotten, that's the part that I find most interesting is after I've, I start to feel better is how long it takes until I feel fearless, until I'm willing to go all out, till I'm not thinking about it any longer. And I find that psychological phenomenon really interesting because of course it's imperceptible. It goes from like a little fear, a little less fear, a little less fear to then suddenly realizing, oh, it's been months since I've been afraid. And no that's brain, no pain. Well, oh gosh, the, no pain, no pain is the best. I mean, the idea, that's another thing. Like we came up with this idea that pain is somehow valuable, which has, it's become, there's this whole like, you know, martyrdom syndrome going along with fitness and exercise. Uh, it's a whole other podcast. That is a whole other podcast. Right. Well, actually I want to leave on this question. When people talk about the new vapor fly, when that comes up in conversation, do you have, do you have thoughts and responses about what seemingly is or isn't happening with the new thing. It's not even new of just like hyper padded shoes. I think it's definitely performance enhancing. Do you? Why? What's the uh, method? Uh, what's the mechanism by which it does that? I think the data shows a clear improvement in running economy. Pause there. So those studies, most of the studies that I know came from Roger Crom right down the street from me who showed an improvement in VO2 max. But after his second study, where he tried to figure out why that was happening, where he couldn't come to any conclusion, he said, but you know, an improvement in VO2 max doesn't equate to performance, which is true, because otherwise we would just measure people's VO2 max before a race and give out metals. So yeah, but if you follow athletics, you'll see this is a significant change in performances across the board. Yeah, but question again, the question is why? If it's not an improvement in VO2 max, what would it be? Oh, well, the... The scientists who can speak to this better than me, but there's a couple of things that there's the foam and there's the um, carbon fiber plate. And what they both seem to do in conjunction is a bit like the trouble with shoes before they vaporfly is that you can't get the response for them because it's a timing issue. You apply force for a certain time when your foot comes in contact with the ground. So whatever, if you want to enhance performance, you've got to get something that can deform and respond quick enough. Otherwise, right. you, you lose the effect. So if you think about a, a trampoline, you know, you've got to apply a lot of force oh, yeah. for quite, quite a long time to then, yeah. to then get the restitution. So Nike seemed to have come up with something between the, as I said, I'm not really a, a shoe expert, to be honest, but the, the, the foam and carbon plate thing seems to be able to give something back to the runner. Now, whether they, you know, if you look at them in the context of injury, that's a completely different, that's a completely different <laughs> thing. But if you look at it solely in terms of performance, I think I don't I, I don't think you can really doubt. But there's a bigger there's a bigger issue there around, you know, there's a lot of issues really around this sort of concept of technological doping. Whether you know, if you look at the the swimsuits that were banned, whether it represents the spirit of the sport, whether someone can really have a personal best and see it as their own versus you know performance enhancing technology there's a whole load of different debates around that but if you just ask the simple question of can this shoe change performance i, I think the answer is yes i'm going to suggest a couple other possibilities that would argue that so one is i'm going to suggest there's a significant placebo effect that people think they're going to run faster and if we use tim noak's idea of the central governor theory that your brain is basically you know shutting you down in some some semi or subconscious way that you're reframing some of those signals and basically expect to run faster and push through in ways that you necessarily didn't, especially if you have more people who are now suddenly wearing this shoe and you expect they're going to run faster, you're going to be a little more competitive, perhaps. Suffice to say, a number of psychological components that are at play here. And then actually it was, a, I did a chat with Jeffrey Gray from Helix. His theory is that 
the additional height is effectively increasing stride length without, and the light weight is making it so that people are able to keep their stride frequency and they just get this artificial increase in stride length, which would mean that there's fewer steps per whatever. And so therefore a little more efficient and a little faster. The carbon fiber plate thing, Simon Bartold made a comment. He said it acts like a, what, how did he say it? He said, it's a, come on, come on, come on, not a spring. He used another for a lever. He said it was a lever that was you know, giving you extra spring. And I said, well, that doesn't work from, the, from physics because a lever needs a fulcrum and there's no fulcrum. Back to your trampoline idea, the lever in that case or the fulcrum would be everywhere the trampoline is attached to the, the tramp bed. I think you're losing less energy from the metatarsal heads with the carbon fiber plate. So, well, that was actually one idea that Roger Crom had was that basically the metatarsals and also just in, in the ankle, the shoe basically allowed you to not use your body as much. <laughs> So you're saving a little effort because you're not having to use your body as much. But to your point about the speed of recovery of the material, A, yeah, you have to be the right weight and the right speed to take advantage of that. And B, of course, the foam is going to start breaking down really quickly. And then it's going to, that, that benefit will, will start to disappear quickly as well. But the magic question still becomes, you know, if we had someone who is a really accomplished barefoot runner, at that same level, would we see the same effect? Or, you know, I mean, I'm just iffy. Uh, I'll tell you, and I'm iffy if for no other reason than no one has come up with a single testable theory about why people are running faster in that shoe. And in, in the absence of something like that, including the absence of that from Nike, and then from everyone else who's now making similar shoes, it just, something seems awry. If you can't come up with a really simple explanation that you could then test. It makes me wonder if there's something else at play beyond the quote unquote technology. Yeah, perhaps. And as you said, it's going to, it's going to be massively influenced by the individual. Yeah. Anyway, someday we will have answers to this. Suffice it to say right now, the, and, and look, you know, as you know, runners, professional athletes or, or highly accomplished athletes, and I will include myself in that as a all-American, a multi-sport all-American, we are superstitious. We are afraid of someone having an edge. We're simultaneously afraid of trying new things and want to try new things to get an edge. So, you know, there's all these other things at play, like a point you made before, you know, what a high level athlete does and what a armchair athlete does are very different things. And to try to extrapolate from a 105 pound Kenyan running 13 miles an hour for two hours to a 300 pound someone running a half marathon for the first time, having not run in 20 years, it's a bit of a stretch. And yet people, that's how they sell those products is look what that guy did. Don't you want to do what that guy did, even though you're nothing like that guy? Yeah. My rant. Anyway, so I'm going to try and give you the last word, which is what thoughts do you have? I'm going to kind of come back in a way to, to something else we said before. What thoughts do you have about what it's going to take to make natural movement something that, you know, there was, we had a lot of buzz in 2009 to 2011, 2012. And it was a little, it got a little hyperbolic and really hurt things in a way because people were claiming that there were promises being made that were not being supported by the research that weren't actually things that most of us who were running barefoot were actually saying. In fact, backing up to Roger Crom, he was researching VO2 max in barefoot runners compared to shod runners. And I said to him, no one ever said that you'd have better VO2 max when you're running barefoot. And besides, the people you were studying were not accomplished barefoot runners. They were people who've done some barefoot training. But anyway, point being is things got crazy. The promises got, you know, way overblown to us possibly. And now, you know, things have been coming back. What we're seeing in our business is just a, we've always seen this, that the interest in natural movement has just continued to go up and up and up, no matter what people said was happening, where people said barefoot is dead not what we see by any stretch of the imagination. But what do you think it's going to take to get to a, maybe a critical mass where at the very least, natural movement is seen as a really viable alternative that people should explore, let alone potentially the mm, benchmark by which we look at things and everything else is a, an intervention off of natural. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the answer is, I don't know. But you and the man. What what I will say is um, I'll just I'll show I'll tell you what we're doing science wise and then I'll tell oh, you good. what we're doing running injury and stuff like that. So 
from the science perspective, what we're trying to do is quantify the differences in musculoskeletal function, structure and function between kids who develop with without shoes and how that impacts their movement skills as a result of that. And that's um, in partnership with a minimalist footwear company, Vivo Barefoot. So they are getting behind that project. They're, they're really interested in that. And also with Vivo, what we've got is another project that looks at adults who have conditions already like knee osteoarthritis and plantar fasciitis to see is there any potential in barefoot activities or minimalist activities for the treatment of existing conditions. And the third part of the science is in adults who have grown up shod, what sort of ways can we optimize transition to barefoot activities? So if somebody wants to take part in barefoot activities, what's the dose? What's the, what's the program that goes with it? Irene Davis in, in Harvard's got a really nice foot core program, those types of things. So that's all the science, you know, how do kids develop? How do their movement skills develop? How do they change if they're in shoes, not in shoes? How can adults transition? If you already have conditions, is there any potential for this type of stuff there? That's, that's what we're investigating with the science. And then when it comes to running injuries, it's a bit different because that's more my own work in terms of sort of, I take the science, but I also take 18 years as a runner, my experience as a clinician, and I try and get right into the nuance, get right into the gray, pull all the behavioral psychology and everything else all into one bucket. And then I go to public forums to runners and say, at the moment, this is why I think you're getting injured. And this is what, what I think you need to do to, to not be injured. So those are the two strands that I'm putting most of my time into at the moment, the, the, the scientific questions. And then the having been through 12 years of injury on and off and then managed to run for three years and run some PBs. I'm trying to pull all that knowledge together, which comes from a lot of different sources, experiential, science, clinical, etc., into into a, a sort of a, a usable thing. So the, the talks I do, I can send you one after. They're, they're all about pulling it together into the simple language to be able to, to use. Back to the clinical part, what are you doing, especially on the people who are currently injured, and I'll, I'll use knee arthritis in particular, what are you structuring that's different than what Isabel Sacco did in Brazil, where she just put some minimalist shoes on a bunch of elderly women with knee osteoarthritis and found that um, it went away? Well, we're doing a few things. Um, the first part is looking at what is the attitude of oh, clinicians. Walk that way and then find somebody if you can. We're going to try and get a sense of what clinicians think about even 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 just barefoot activities in, in, in a clinical setting in, in rehab. We're going to see what they think first. And then we're potentially going to look at changes in biomechanics and pain as a result of different footwear conditions. So that's, mm. that's where we're going with that one. And for the kids, obviously, anyway, we can help. We're happy to help. I don't know if you've talked to Christine Pollard at Oregon State. She's been doing some research on kids. And basically, I don't know if I'm speaking at a school when I say this. Well, I, I'll, I'll just describe the gist of what she's looking at. Kids running in a motion-controlled shoe versus barefoot versus in a pair of our shoes. And just looking at the differences biomechanically and kinematics. And I haven't talked to her in a while to see what the latest news from the study is. But the preliminary information, let's just say, was very compelling and interesting. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And Karsten Olander's done a lot of nice work in that, in that space yeah. as well. Yeah, some good data. Well, Irene Davis, her line, she was, if we just get kids living in minimalist footwear when they need footwear, in 20 years, we won't be treating adults for the problems that we currently treat adults for. I hope she's right, and I have reason to think that she is. Yeah, my suspicion on what I, what I observed in the, the kids in New Zealand would be that that's definitely um, a possibility, yeah. Yeah. Lorraine Muller, who was one of Arthur Lydiard's athletes, she was a world, she was an Olympic medalist in the marathon. She was, I think, I don't remember if she won Boston and New York. She was, you know, a world champion marathoner. She said she never really wore shoes to train until she came to America and got sponsorship. And she said, and that was the first time I ever got injured. And <laughs> it was really interesting. Uh, Lorraine's a hoot. She's a dear, dear woman. Anyway, Peter, this has been a total, total treat. I'm so glad that we've actually finally crossed paths. We'll talk after this about more ways that we can be hopefully be helpful 
for you, both personally and professionally. But in the meantime, um, if people want to find out more about what you've been doing um, or if they want to be helpful in some way, how can they do that? So I have a, a blog, peterfrancis.blog, and I write under the, under the tab running from injury. There's about 50 blogs on everything you can do to not be injured as a runner. There's podcast interviews on there. There's a recorded talk. There's, there's all sorts of stuff there. And mainly, I release any of the science we do on Twitter. And that's just at Peter Francis underscore IE. And that's, that's, yeah, that's where you can get all the stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And for everyone else, thank you, obviously. Or once again, if you want to find out more about Peter's stuff, you know where to go. And we want to find out more about what we've been, all the other conversations we've been having with other people about natural movement. I'm still waiting to have someone who thinks that I'm completely full of it and have a, you know, knockdown drag out with them. That'll be fun. But go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find all the previous episodes. You'll find all the places you can find us on YouTube and on Facebook and on Instagram and all the places that podcasts are served. And you can leave comments and reviews and you know do all those things you know how to do, subscribe and share, et cetera. Most importantly, also, if you have any recommendations or questions, drop me an email, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. And as always, until next time, have fun and live life feet first. You've been listening to the Movement Movement Podcast with host Stephen Sashin. Remember to join the tribe and subscribe at jointhemovementmovement.com.